Welcome to Sculpture Vulture. I'm Lucy Branch, a sculptural conservator and author, bringing you a series of interviews with some amazing sculptors who inspire me and I hope will do the same for you. You can see the photographs accompanying the interview, the episode show notes and get a free novel from sculpturevulture.co.uk. Hello Sculpture Vultures and thank you for joining me for another interview with an incredible sculptor of large-scale outdoor bronzes. Simon Gudgeon is based in Dorset and he and his wife have shaped the land that they bought to give his sculptures the backdrop that they truly deserve. Take a look at sculpturesbythelake.co.uk if you'd like to take a virtual tour of his work. He manages to fuse figurative sculpture with abstract, landscape with fantasy and otherworldliness. He's the kind of sculptor that surprises you with every new work he does. And so in order to get to know the real Simon Gudgeon, I began our conversation today by asking him if he'd always been creative. I think so, yes. I mean, I, I, as, a, as a child, I used to like making things and that's primarily what I love doing. I mean, I'm, I'm a sculptor, yes, but I just love making things. So all the pieces in the sculpture park, um, pretty well I've made. And that carried through. I mean, I did law um, at university and actually qualified as a, as a solicitor, but retired the day I qualified because I hated it so much. And from there, I went into landscape gardening, garden design, and gradually became an artist in my 30s, painter initially, and then sculpting when I was 40. So I suppose, yes, pretty well everything I've done has been fairly creative. And even when you do something like the law, you've still got to be quite creative. Definitely. I think you have to uh, just in a, in a different way, perhaps not so much yeah. with the, the physical things. But and was it something that you felt was missing from the law? Did it you need to do something practical to feel fulfilled as well as sort of mentally creative? I don't know. I, ju- I just didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I, I mean, I, I did three years at university, I went to law college, then I did two years articles, I did six years in total to qualify. Um, I think one of the problems with law is that you're essentially always dealing with somebody who's got a problem. And people aren't always at their best with the problem. So it's it it just wasn't being a nice environment. I also I was brought up in the countryside. And being in an office all day, that really wasn't for me. I didn't like that side at all. And so was there anybody at home that had that creative urge as well, that sort of making things urge inspired you? Um, my grandfather always had a lovely workshop. Um, he had his, all his old tobacco tins were painted on the front with all the sizes of the screws and the nails. And yes, his workshop was wonderful. And he was initially the one who said, come in, you know, if we went to stay with him, he would, uh, he would take us into the workshop to make things and show us a little bit of, he was mainly woodwork, so, uh, which I'm not actually, I don't really do much woodwork it's all metal for me now yes well bronze is uh is such a beautiful material I'm, I'm a little bit biased but the thing is that I always look at the other materials and think hasn't got quite such range no I mean although I do love rusted steel as well oh, yes. I, I love working in mild steel uh, difficult to restore I don't like yep. it so much <laughs> <laughs> and so when did sculpture itself come into your life in my 30s, my mother bought me some paints and I started painting. Um, I'd done O-level art, but at school, art was really um, 
a sheet of crumpled cartridge paper and six blocks of poster colour and a horsehair brush. So when I started painting again in my 30s and suddenly you had fantastic stretched watercolour and sable brushes and beautiful paints, that was a revelation. I think if I'd gone to a school that had a wonderful art department, I might have actually stuck with it far more. So it sounds like to me like the accessories around um, making things. So you talked about your grandfather's workshop and how appealing all the boxes and things were, but also the brushes and things like that, that that draws you towards it. I'm, I'm definitely a tool slut. <laughs> <laughs> I love, yeah, I, I love getting different tools. And that's actually thought... What I love is a problem. I, lo I, lo I, I like to think of something I want to make and then work out how to make it and then what new kit I need to actually be able to fulfil that. And so that's, that's the excitement. It's the planning. Once I've made something in a certain way, I'm actually almost get a little bit bored with it and then try and find another way of doing something. Yeah, I always find it's really easy for me at Christmas because I always can give my husband another tool for our workshop. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, there's, absolutely. there's always, I think he got a, um, a, a new circular saw at Christmas yes. this year. <laughs> it's, it's not very romantic, but, you know, we, we both like it. <laughs> well, no, I think that's, that's the best thing. It's the best thing by far. And so was there a point where you went to study uh, how to sculpt or is this something that you really taught yourself? I'm totally self-taught. I, I initially, it was when I was painting, and I'd gone professional as an artist, and um, I was in an art shop in London, and I saw some clay, and I thought, oh, it would be quite fun to try sculpting. And so I bought the clay and took it back and put it away in the studio, put it actually in, in one of the cupboards and didn't do anything with it. And I used to find with painting um, that I used to go through stages and I would get better and better and better. And then you'd hit a mental block and everything you produced was actual rubbish. And initially I tried to push through that, but latterly I found that the best thing to do was to take a few days off and get refreshed, get inspired and go back and start again. And so I always used to, before doing, taking those few days off, I used to just tidy the studio so it was immaculate to come back into. And as I was tidying it, I found the clay again and I thought, oh, well, actually, I'll, I'll spend a bit of time sculpting. And I started and it was it was magical. I always thought there was some strange alchemy in producing a 3D object. But actually, to me, it's far, far easier than doing a 2D painting. I think lots of people are actually drawn to painting. Maybe it's because it's maybe there's more materials, more um, ease of access to painting materials. But I think you need a certain kind of mind to think in three-dimensional ways. Yes, very possibly. I mean, I, I, I find it very easy and I can't understand why everybody doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there must be a lot of competition out there waiting to start and probably out of business. No, not at all. <laughs> and so it was figurative form that you started with um, straight away? No, it was, yes, I, I was, my paintings were essentially wildlife. I grew up on a farm in Yorkshire and, you know, that that's what I knew and Essentially, you paint what you love, what you know, and you've got to know your subject. So as soon as I started sculpting, I carried on doing more wildlife and then started developing other ideas as well, because actually just depicting a bird or an animal is actually reasonably easy. It's then to actually start abstracting that form. And that's what I love doing. So uh, I do quite a lot of abstract bird sculptures which are loosely based on a type of bird, but actually they're very, very abstract and very smooth lines, flowing lines, and linking other things in with those sculptures as well. 
That's one of the things that I really like about your work, actually. It always surprises me. I always think I'm, I know what you're thinking and then suddenly you do something else with it that makes me think, mm, maybe I didn't quite get that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've got to just go back to the Yorkshire thing. So yeah. which part of Yorkshire are you from? Um, I was born just outside York, um, but we then we had a rented a farm just outside Scarborough on the okay. um, east coast. Yeah, no, I'm from the north as well, not quite as uh, far as York. I'm closer to Bradford, which is not um, known for its most beautiful uh, part of the world, but actually is gorgeous. Well, once you once you get out in the countryside, yes. there it's all it's stunning. Yeah, although um, where where we lived, it was it, we were quite close to the coast, and so we used to get the sea frets coming in. And we were in a valley and the wind used to come up the valley. So from a very, very early age, I thought I I want to move down south. I'd never been down south. I just wanted to move down south. Gosh, that's funny, because usually I find the north, people from the north want to stay north. Good Lord, no, I just, I wanted some warm weather. I mean, I went to university in Reading and, you know, I used to leave Yorkshire in September in thick, heavy jumpers and everything and go down south and used to be in shirt sleeves for another month or two but then it's wet in dorset it's not that wet actually no No, i i i I mean we get little wet periods and we had a very wet winter but um then then we all went into lockdown and had 10 weeks of the most fantastic weather (laughs) which was a saving grace and down in dorset which is um was it somewhere that you went to because of the sculpture or was it part of your life's journey and then the sculpture just fitted into that? It was purely accidental. We were, uh, we were living in Wiltshire on the edge of the New Forest and renting um, a cottage and my studio was an old Nissen hut, an old piggery, um, which was freezing cold in winter and boiling hot in summer and only had a ceiling that was seven foot high. So it's a, it, I, when it comes to studios, I think any artist, they're like goldfish um, in, a, in a bowl. You sort of grow to the size of your bowl and artists grow to the size of their studio. And I've changed studio quite a lot. And every time I've moved studio, my work has changed quite dramatically. And I, I wanted a bigger studio. We wanted to buy somewhere. Um, we wanted a, preferably an acre of land so we weren't too close to any neighbours. <laughs> and and um, we started looking and everything in our budget was the other side of Exeter. And um, this place came up and it was double our budget. And it massive, I mean, it's 26 acres, loads of buildings, um, unbelievable. And we thought there's no way we can afford that. And then we looked again and it was actually a commercial fishery in those days and we looked at the figures from the commercial fishery and thought maybe we could just about afford it and um, the the fishery would help pay for the mortgage so we took Mm. out a massive mortgage in 2007 and bought it but we didn't know this area at all didn't know anybody here and it was just yeah purely the property wow it just drew you was it must have been a lovely property (laughs) It's it's stunning. And actually well, the pictures I've seen do look. I haven't actually obviously been down to the sculpture part, but I I really every time I look at the photos, I just think that is special. Or whether it's a very clever camera, I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, when we again when we first moved here, it was it was very sort of it was quite bland. Everything was mown like a golf course. Um, we've planted thousands of trees and shrubs and created lovely wildlife areas. Um, dug a few more ponds and just, yes, just slowly wilded parts of it and developed the gardens in other parts. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your 
um, the way that your career has developed because you you know you've done some incredible commissions you've had some really serious success really and that's not an easy thing especially when you come at the career a little bit later Have, has there been any wisdom you can pass on to I don't know uh, artists on their way up I, th I think do what you love don't do anything for commercial reasons um, I actually don't do commissions the the one in Hyde Park that was the only commission I've ever done and that was very loose. That was, if you could put a sculpture there, what would you put there? Well, that was the uh, first one I, I came, that's where I came across you first. Yeah. So I, I presumed you did do commissions, but... No, I, I've got quite strong feelings about commissions, unless unless it's somebody wants a painting of their house, their dog or themselves, I, I, I do really think the commission's more about prostitution than anything else, because you're essentially doing something somebody else wants without the full inspiration of creating a piece that you're passionate about. And there's also the time element. There's the, the, the question, one of the most common questions is how long does a sculpture take to make? And actually the making of it isn't that long. It's actually it's the thought process, the inspiration, the ideas behind it that can take sometimes days, sometimes weeks, months, sometimes even years. I mean, the one in Hyde Park, it took me six years to get to the stage when that's the piece I wanted to make. And that end of that six years was just the time when they said, if you could put a sculpture there, what would you put there? And I'd just spent six years thinking about this sculpture. Mm -hmm. And so, again, why would people want to commission an artist? Because if you really want the best the artist is able to produce, let them take let them just create things out of passion and wait until you see something that artists has produced that you can't live without that side both parties are going to be very happy a commission can be produced and the people commissioning it can be slightly disappointed the artist is probably going to be slightly disappointed as well and it's it's a compromise and where do you draw your inspiration from oh everything all over everything i read everything i see travels traveling is wonderful traveling is i think one of the the greatest sources because you move into different cultures and see different cultures but also when you're outside the your studio and you can't create work your mind moves into a different plane and starts thinking about things in a different way so every time i've traveled then yes my i come back with lots of ideas and it's sort of cultural things as well i mean a lot of the abstract bird forms are shaped by um, egyptian culture um, and the idea of the egyptian gods and yes there's there's just elements everything 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 absorbs everything goes into the mind and it can be a massive combination like the dancing cranes there it's part crane but it's also based on the south african flower the strelitzia which is known as the crane flower so it's combining different elements into a sculpture i think it's quite interesting though that your environment is so formative as well with your sculpt so the in something like lockdown might have also affected your your creativity and things not just physical environment but also what's going on around you Yes, there's, I mean, lockdown was quite interesting because none of the foundries were open, so I wasn't going to get anything cast anyway. So I had quite a lot of bits of steel, and I started just making making things out of steel from scrap. So I did a ballerina made out of the old the old type of flooring nails. Um, I did some giant four-meter-high swallows made out of bending 20-millimeter metal steel rods. And then I was three swallows swimming across the lakes, uh, flying across the lakes, um, and that that was that was fascinating. I think the the most 
the biggest influence certainly since we moved here has actually been the landscape here and that once we started developing a sculpture park um, I didn't want to have all the same type of sculpture here and I also had ideas for you know a certain area might want a figurative piece and other area might want an abstract piece and so I I tend to not stick to any particular genre I just see, see an area and think I would love to have say a ballerina in that particular area therefore I will make a figurative ballerina sometimes out of bronze sometimes out of mild steel. Well I was just thinking that how um, incredibly expensive bronze casting can be and that's why I suppose many artists um, do commissions because um, it enables them to get their larger pieces particularly made without having to bear the brunt of all the, um, <laughs> yes. the, the foundry bills but on the other hand I suppose that if you've got people visiting the park and hopefully buying from you that's a, a really good um, business model as well. Well, the, the, the park initially, we set it up to be able to show clients monumental sculpture outdoors because as soon as you take a large sculpture and put it in a gallery, it's out of scale, it's out of context, and it looks massive. Um, one of the early pieces I did, a big piece called Tehuti, which is an abstract bird form, um, 2.1 metres high. And it's be, I've seen it in a gallery in London and it looked huge and yet the first time it was exhibited outdoors um, I had it as a temporary sculpture in Berkeley Square and I was waiting in Berkeley Square for it to turn up on the lorry and I thought oh, it's going to be massive it's going to, oh, it's going to look really good here and I just remember the lorry driving into Berkeley Square and it, this sculpture looked tiny because the, the plane trees in London are yeah. massive and the, the, the Berkeley Square ones and it just dwarfed them and it was that that's what really brought it home to me about scale and context and location yeah. and you know it's finding the right scale of sculpture for a particular location if you've got a huge sculpture you'll be able to see it from a long vista if you've got something small you've got to have it in a more intimate space and that's again what we've been doing here we just create lots of little areas and because the sculptures are here pretty well permanently that means that we can actually landscape an area for them and they become part of it which is a luxury most other sculpture parks don't have because they most of the sculptures are on temporary so they essentially have to just sort of put them in the middle of a bit of grass or something they can't really make the landscape work with the sculpture quite as much and that's that's what it, that's what outdoor sculpture should do outdoor sculpture should enhance the landscape and the landscape should enhance the sculpture the two have got to work together very closely yeah, uh, the only problem is I can see a huge failing if it was me owning the sculpture park because I wouldn't want to sell anything. Oh, they're all in editions, you see, so you, so you, you, you sell the editions. And actually, as, as an artist, I think you're a bit of a tart anyway. You want to sell because it, if you don't sell, you, you can't, if every sale facilitates the next piece of sculpture. Yes. I mean, I've got, I've got ideas for sculpture which I, will cost hundreds of thousands to produce. And, you know, if I, if I can sell enough sculpture, then I'll be able to produce them. Yes, so I, there, I is, there is yeah. motivation there, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And actually, once you've created a sculpture, it's all, you're slightly bored with it. You know, it, you, it's, it's done, it's the past. You know, everybody says, what's your favourite sculpture? It's normally the one I've just finished. Yeah. And then once I've seen it for a while, I'm really thinking about the next one. Yeah. Are you working with a foundry very closely so that you, if somebody wants to have something that you made a long time ago, you I mean, it's quite hard to get back into the mindset of what that was. Well, the foundry do all that. We've got the moulds. So actually, yes, I, I will make the initial pattern 
for a sculpture and then m make a mold and then it's cast using the lost wax casting process so we've got a massive store of all my molds well actually most of them in 2000 and i think it was 2012 one of the foundries i worked with they had a serious fire so i lost a huge number of molds oh. so that was the end of all those editions yeah it was quite devastating yeah but the only thing is that you, so the patination and things, you leave it to the foundry, they know what you want? Yes, I work very closely with them. I mean, the, 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 the casting process, there's probably about six specialisations and I can do all of them, but I can't do it as well as the guys in the foundry who do that particular specialisation all the time. Sure. And, and I don't really want to. I mean, I, when I first started, um, the first foundry I used wasn't very good at all. So I... It was, the, it was, I think, it was the second sculpture I produced. It was a, a grouse, mm -hmm. um, a bronze life-size grouse, and the foundry wasn't doing a good job. So I thought I'll just do all the chasing and get um, and the patination, and then I had an exhibition and I sold out the edition straight away. So all twelve. So I had to chase and patinate 12 grouse and by the end of it I thought I'd never want to do this again I never want to even see this old chasing and things again because it's 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 exciting the first time you do it but after a while it just gets very dull yeah well the thing is especially when your mind is probably as you were saying before on to the next thing yeah, it's it's yeah. already left that project you work with a good team they can reproduce your work and you're confident in them so that works quite yeah. well oh, yeah. it frees you up so if I ask you that whether there's been one that you've stood back and gone, that's it. If I never work again, I've done it. Is there been one like that? No, there's there's ones I stand back from and think, yeah, that, I'm quite pleased with that one. That'll do. Um, but but there's there's so many new ideas that I want to do and fulfil that I don't I don't actually I don't get emotionally attached to them. So has, do you think then creativity is a bit of a muscle? The more you use it, the more you it flows, and the stronger you are. Or oh. Totally yes. I mean, it's 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 the ten thousand hour rule. Ah. If you and and there's a rule um, that ten thousand hours. If you do anything for ten thousand hours, you'll actually be pretty good at it. And and you look back at say sportsmen, tennis players. Most of them start at around about sort of four, five, six years old. And by the time they get into their teens, they put in ten thousand hours solid tennis playing, and they get very very good. And that applies to most things. There's extra elements which help as well like a certain aptitude and actually for art it's the creative the inspiration and the ideas and the creativity but the, the physicality of painting or sculpting you become very good if you put the hours in and then the actual the inspiration the ideas you've got to keep feeding the mind because your your the brain doesn't stop working even when you're asleep so if you feed a whole load of information into your brain before you go to sleep, it'll work away through the night and then in the morning you'll wake up with a fantastic idea and you go, where did that come from? But it's all, it's all information you've fed into it. The more you've sculpted, the more you've wanted to sculpt, the more you've produced. And the better you get. Yes. yes. So if you could name your place, uh, is there some way other than your sculpture park that you'd like to see your work? It's, it is lovely having your work in public places. I mean, I've got uh, two pieces at the Cirque de la Soleil headquarters in Montreal. Um, I've got a piece in Kew Gardens as well, uh, Woburn Abbey. Um, so yes, it, it, is, it is rather, it's just lovely. It, mm. it sort of, it justifies what I do. You feel that it's there. A lot of other people can see it as opposed to going to a private garden as well. Yeah. Um, and that that is that is nice because you know not not everybody can afford a monumental sculpture, but to be able to come out and see them and and get the pleasure of them and see how they can 
uplift people's spirits, I think, is very important. Yeah, and again, different context does bring something different to to the sculpture, I think. Uh, you can place it in more than one place, and actually it's a different sculpture almost, depending on its environment. Yes, I mean, and quite a lot of the sculptures here we've moved a few times, and every time you move them, they become almost a different sculpture. So it's, it is the environment that really helps. But I think it's very important for people to see art. I mean, art is a it's a non-utilitarian object. It doesn't serve any practical purposes, but it uplifts people's spirits. It, yeah. it, it's sort of, it's, it's a, people have an emotional response to it. And I think that's very, very important. And that's what is the most important thing about art. If you have a house with nothing on the walls and it's very, very bland environment, I mean, it would be quite depressing. But art can uplift, it can transform people's lives. And so there isn't a spot that you've got your eye on that you think I'd quite like to have one of my sculptures there. Not specifically, but I would like to. I've, I've got a, an idea for a huge sculpture which I would just love to do, and yeah, yeah, put somewhere very prominent. Would you um, be able to tell people where they'd be able to find out a little bit more about you if they'd like to look at more of your work? Yes, if they want to go onto my website, which is uh, simongudgeon.com. Um, that's got all my current pieces into it. If they want to come and see it uh, in the, the physical sculptures, then Sculpture by the Lakes in Dorset. I've got over 30 of my monumental sculptures dotted around the park, the 26-acre park. And I've also got a gallery here, which has got another 30 or so sculptures in it as well. So that's the biggest concentration of my work. And so you're having to look after all of that as well. I was going to say the grounds must be <laughs> quite something. It's bad enough with 50 foot of garden. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, well, luckily my wife is the gardener, so she, she tends the green stuff. And then we sort of have a little fighting over an area saying she wants to plant a tree there and I want to put a sculpture there. So <laughs> Who gets there first? <laughs> who, who, get, who gets there first, yes. And then, so I sort of rope off an area and say, no, that's going to be for a sculpture. But yes, you, we, I mean, we've got a team of gardeners here. It's um, 26 acres takes quite some looking after yeah so we we have quite a lot of people working for us and so is there any social media you prefer if people would like to get in touch with you uh we do instagram and facebook and a little bit of twitter i don't really do twitter very much though but facebook is probably the one of the bigger ones but and instagram as well great is have you got a handle at instagram is it just simon gudgeon I think everything is just Simon Gudgeon. I was quite early on in social media, so I, um, I managed to nobble Simon Gudgeon for pretty well everything, <laughs> well apart from Skype. <laughs> so thank you very much for talking to me today, Simon. It's been a real pleasure for me, and um, I hope to speak to you again soon. I feared with this interview that Simon Gudgeon might fall off the pedestal I'd placed him on. His work is so concentrated in skill and imagination and deep thought that I was genuinely nervous that the reality couldn't possibly live up to such expectations. But isn't it always fantastic when you get surprised in life? There's so much that I could comment on, but in particular, what I thought was fascinating is that he had a whole other substantial career before he took off with his art seriously in his 30s. Now, you should always listen to your dad, but my dad did used to say that man can have many lives if he chooses. He can have a new one every decade. He said you could train in something, take a degree, three years, and 
have a couple of years of work experience and then get off on your great adventure. And if after another five years you so choose, you could do that all over again. So with Simon's experience, it just shows that his creativity was always there, just waiting patiently for him to remember it. And it finally did get his notice, thank goodness. And he credits that creative spark with the compulsion to solve a problem. And that doesn't necessarily subscribe to our standard notions around art. You often give a child a piece of paper, we tell them to draw something and we expect them just to conjure it up from their imagination, just from thin air. But Simon starts with something much more anchored in practicality, solving a problem. And in so doing, he creates an object which has been completely reimagined. He very openly admits that he can hit a wall from time to time during his creative process. And when it happens, what he does is takes a few days off. He recharges, he tidies up that studio with all those fantastic little tools that he enjoys so much. He puts them all back in the right places. And that, I think, is incredibly good advice, but really hard to follow. It just shows how much he trusts his creativity. He doesn't cling on to it, begging it to come right. He sets it free and sets himself free at the same time. And sure enough, it does come home. I could definitely do with trusting that creative process a little more. Uh, it's a very hard thing to do just to step away from a problem when you're right in the throes of it, when it's got a grip on your soul, especially if you have a deadline. Uh, there's always that sense that you might not get there in time, but it comes back to having faith, not religious faith necessarily, though you may want to call it the same thing, but faith in the creative process. So to conclude, I think his little anecdote about how he started making things out of scrap metal when the foundries were closed for COVID just shows you how supple and fluid his creativity is these days. And that's because he's logged his 10,000 hours and some, I'm sure. He found another outlet when the he found another outlet for his sculpture when his usual one was out of action for a while. And he also mentions this ability to shift and to change when he talks about how his own style around his sculpture changes with his studio when, he, when that changed. And the idea that we might be able to say paint but not sculpt or say knit but not sew I think it's a very unhelpful idea and mostly it just comes about because creativity is a muscle that we don't necessarily exercise in the way that we do other muscles in our body and I believe that the creativity that I bring to my own practical conservation work with sculpture is exactly the same thing as what I might do with, say, my marketing of my business or even the ideas that go into my novels. It's like being fit in many ways. 
Once you start jogging, lifting weights, doing yoga, that fitness doesn't just relate to those individual activities. It affects everything in your life. It can help your mood, uh, your appetite might improve and change. Your stamina for your other daytime work will increase, but you need to cultivate it just the same way that we cultivate fitness. And it has to be a learned thing and practiced in every part of your day. Coming up next week is Jason Declare Taylor's. He's the only sculptor this season that rarely works in bronze. I've made an exception for him because he is just so brilliant. Do listen into his TED talk if you do a little search on YouTube. I'm sure he will draw you in. He's an artist and an activist producing underwater sculpture museums such as the Museo Atlantico in Lanzarote and the Moliniere Underwater Sculpture Park in Grenada, as well as others. If you're in the UK, you can see his work in Vauxhall. The rising tide horses are amazing and Alluvia in the River Stour if you're near Canterbury. His desire to raise awareness of the broad health of the environment and specific concerns about the sea through his fusion of sculpture and water is just, it's mesmerising. So tune in to the next episode and be inspired by sculpture. If you're looking for a new book, please consider one of my novels about the dark side of the art world, where sculpture is always at the heart of the story. You can get them on the show website, on the usual online retailers, or even better, keep your local library alive, ask for them in there. Thank you for joining me today. Sculpture Vulture has been brought to you by Antique Bronze.